Welcome to episode 51 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia, and today I'm joined by blogger and podcaster Science Mike. Mike and I are going to chat about what it means to have a developing faith, especially in light of living in the South, and we'll chat podcasting and what we're reading right now. Before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone how important it is, um, even in this busy, hectic holiday season, to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Um, I know we have so many listeners, and it means so much when you go onto iTunes and you rate or review us. It helps us um, attract more listeners and grow the show, so I'd really appreciate it. If you would, during this season of generosity, take a minute, log on to your phone, log on to your iTunes account, and just give us a quick rating or review. Let us know how we're doing and um, so that we can keep making this podcast better and better all right let's go ahead and get started hi mike hey how are you wonderful thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today oh it's a pleasure i've been looking forward to it because i know it's nuts up there around the holidays trying to run a bookstore so thanks for making the time <laughs> well it has been i will tell you it has been a very hectic couple of weeks i feel very scrooge like telling people that i'm ready for january but <laughs> <laughs> There it is. Um, but no, I'm really happy to be able to take some time out of the store today and um, and chat with you. I think it'll be a good, fun conversation. Um, I wanted to start by just asking you generally, for listeners of this podcast who might be unfamiliar with Science Mike or with your work, I'd love you to tell us about your blog, your online um, presence, and kind of how that got started. How did you find yourself writing about faith and science on the internet? Completely by accident. Um, <laughs> I'm actually a technologist and marketer by trade. Okay. I've made my career um, first in the IT world and then the ad world uh, stemming from that. In my personal life, I went through kind of a crisis of faith that ended up with me losing my faith entirely as I kind of evaluated the world scientifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, spent a couple of years, you know, with no belief or faith in God whatsoever. And um, then that changed, and I had kind of an experience where I felt like God showed up in a very profound way, and instead of being comforting, it was mainly confusing, <laughs> because it's strange for someone who doesn't believe in God encounter God Mm -hmm. so I started studying um, physics and neurology primarily to understand what that experience was and kind of in the process found a way back into a faith I could handle and um, a friend of mine a guy named Rob Bell and he writes and he has an internet platform and people know who he is and uh, he started introducing me to some of his friends, and I started getting interviewed by them because they wanted to hear about this story of a guy who liked science who met God. Mm-hmm. And uh, it shifted the tone of my blog from reviewing gadgets and technology mm-hmm. to spirituality and science. Okay. And from there, um, I started a collective called The Liturgists with a guy named Michael Gunger. He's a musician. Yes. Um, he wrote Beautiful Things, uh, which is a pretty popular song in the church world. Yes. And uh, 
so he and I do that, and a lot of folks have come along. Rob's one of them. Uh, Rachel Held Evans, Sean Nequist, a lot of really fun folks have worked with us on that project. And we started a podcast called The Liturgist Podcast, where we kind of talk about faith in the context of science and art and a really honest appraisal of doubt and the kind of questions people have about God today. Um, and then I also host a show called Ask Science Mike. So, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I really do love um, some of what you're doing online, and I think it's so interesting that surely people were asking questions and struggling with doubt you know, before the internet ever existed. We see that in literature, um, and we know that through conversations that we have with people we love and with friends and family. But I do appreciate that the internet, even though sometimes the internet drives me crazy and, um, you know, comment boards make me angsty, but I do appreciate that the internet has really brought people together who maybe wouldn't have found each other otherwise. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so I do really love hearing that you've been able to partner with so many other people because I think that lets people know. I mean, even I have had questions about faith, and I have loved Rachel Held Evans' blog was really helpful to me. Um, Shauna Nequist is a faith writer who I read regularly, and all of these people kind of helped made me make me realize that the things I was going through and the questions I was asking were normal, um, whereas sometimes at least in my church experience, those questions weren't always looked at as normal. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to the internet, I guess, for, for allowing us to ask these questions together. Well, the, the beauty of the internet is it's, you know, varying degrees of anonymity allow people to be open mm-hmm. and it's instant and high-speed connectivity combined with searchability let people discover each other and, and find out that the thing they thought they were alone in the world about, they're not actually alone. Right. And they can talk with people all around the world who believe what they believe, and that's exciting, and it's also terrifying, <laughs> because it not only allows isolated people who are good folks, but in some way out of step with their community to find home, it also lets, uh, you know, weirdos and miscreants of all types <laughs> find each other, and you see that and, you know, the proliferation of hate speech online and right. um, even the art of trolling where anonymity brings out the worst of people. Yes. Um, it's definitely a two-sided coin, this freedom of information online. Absolutely. I love what you said about the Internet being a way that we can find people who are like us because I think that's actually what great books can do. Um, to, me, to me, great literature enables you to find people who are like you. I think C.S. Lewis maybe said something about friendship and how the friends are the moment that you realize, hey, you thought that too. And I think I have found that often through books and through reading. Um, And then the flip side to that is I love reading books by people who have completely different worldviews and experiences from me. Um, and I'm curious, your blog, um, Science Mike, um, says, you know, that the blog is a safe place for people who are redefining and re-examining their faith. So it's supposed to be a safe space on the internet. And I wondered, what books have you found that maybe offer that same refuge? So if your blog is a place of solace for people as you intend it to be, um, what literature or what books have you found that also allow people to ask these questions and allow them to struggle and express their doubts? 
Ooh, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, the first thing is that word safe is, um, it's a relative term. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything is safe for everybody. Mm-hmm. So my, my blog is safe for people who are going through some type of deconstruction and trying to find new footing. But it's not necessarily all that safe to people who kind of have a faith really figured out that mm-hmm. works for them. Right. I got an email today from someone who said that they've never really struggled with doubt until they started listening to my podcast. Uh, and now they feel like they're becoming an atheist. And like, like that's the last thing right. in the world right. I want to see happen. But it's because I kind of lay bare all these questions and criticisms that skeptics have about our faith right. that is at the same time encouraging and safe to doubting people and unsafe to people who hold some traditional orthodox Christian ideas. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, you know, in, in that space, it depends on, say, from whose perspective. I think uh, one book lately that I've read that I think is, is beautiful and moving and opening up a essential conversation would be Between the World and Me by Tennessee Coates. Oh, yes. Um, it's a book that speaks about the struggle of black people in America to find belonging and find self-worth. And um, I think that's an essential movement in creating safety for a huge group of people in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, but at the same time, that book is really, really challenging if you're a white Southerner who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about the struggle of black people in America. Yeah. Um, kind of on the religious front, I've found probably um, Pete N's book, uh, The Bible Tells Me So, to be yeah. remarkable for people who are searching for answers on how to relate to the Bible and relate to God. Um, I don't know if you've read that one. I um, haven't read that it, one. Was it the really, same? Really, really good. Is there a documentary it's, by the same name, or is that a different? I feel like there's a documentary. I think that's different. So Pete Enns is a is a is a Bible scholar. He's a PhD, Harvard PhD. Okay. Um, and he basically says that the process we've been taught in the church of how to defend the Bible is destroying our ability to read it. Mm. And that we bring a bunch of assumptions to this text that weren't intended by the authors. Basically, we read the Bible as modernists, and its authors were not modernists. And we read it as people who adhere to a constitution as a form of law. But the people who wrote the Bible had never heard of a constitution because constitutions hadn't been invented. <laughs> right. So it's this really fascinating book um, that for people who, you know, are trying to figure out, well, what role does the Bible play? How do I make peace with this book that both tells me like God is beautiful and has a plan for the world, but also tells me that God commanded people to go into the promised land and kill the women and the children. Mm-hmm. What do I do with that? Right. He does a great job creating safe space there. And I, um, I understand what you mean, I think, because that's the kind of book that might appeal to me or um, I have a brother who has gotten his master's degree in theology and as a result has started asking a lot of questions and that seems a, like a book he would love. Um, and I'm, we're, we're very um, grateful, I guess, because we have parents who read 
alongside us and who they're always asking what what kind of questions we're asking and they kind of even if their faith it looks a lot different from ours they're comfortable with the questions that we're asking but i can see how a book like that might be in your the terms you were using unsafe to my parents but safe to me um and and so i'm grateful because I come from a reading family. It's part of how I have wound up the owner of a bookstore. Um, so my dad will still read things. I think recently he read a book um, that my brother had read by Shane Claiborne. And I think it completely changed my dad's views on politics, but it really also bothered my dad. You know, So my brother found comfort in that book, but my dad really had to come to grips with some changing views at his age, which I think can be difficult. Um so, yeah, I think safe and unsafe certainly is relative depending on who's doing the, the reading and the listening and, and where, we, where we have our personal stances. Mm. I mean, that's the beauty of books, really, Yes, is, you know, this kind of magical ability to put thoughts into matter and then transmit them from brain to brain. <laughs> uh, but we never know what reference point a reader brings to a book. That's something I'm really struggling with right now. I'm in kind of the home stretch of my debut book mm. with my publisher and trying to imagine the way the work will connect with different readers mm-hmm. uh, can almost be paralyzing. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure because you have no idea what worldview people will be coming to your book with. Um, mm. And, you know, that can feel... I, I would imagine that can feel extremely daunting, especially, um, I don't know what your book is about, but the more personal or the more vulnerable a book is, I think that would be, that would be challenging. I'm curious how living in our particular part of the country, you know, you, based on what I've heard from your podcast and what I've seen in your blog, you interact with people all over the country. You have conversations with people Um, from all different walks of life, all different regions. And I'm always fascinated by how someone's region kind of shapes who they are, like it or not, even if you you wish it didn't. Um, And I'm curious, you know, we live in, you know, I've always was hesitant. I grew up in Tallahassee um, and I went to Alabama uh, for school, for college. And I always thought I was raised in the South until I went to Alabama and I realized... (laughs) And I realized, oh, I am not Southern like these people are Southern. Um, and and yet, then you go to Washington, D.C., or you go, my, you know, some of my best friends live in Colorado, and that's not Southern. I feel very Southern when I'm, when I'm in those places. So I'm curious how, where you grew up or where we live here in this kind of odd part of the South, Thomasville, Tallahassee, how has that shaped and influenced who you are, but um, in terms of your faith, but just in general, how has the South kind of made made Mike Mike? <laughs> I grew up in Tallahassee. I've uh, been here since I was four years old. Both of my parents are from Madison, Florida, or Madison County, more more precisely. Okay. Um, and so, multi multi generations of my family deep roots in this part of the country. So yes. my family thinks of Tallahassee and Thomasville as like the big cities <laughs> uh, compared to rural Madison. Yes. Um, you know, Valdosta is the closest town of any size, but if you want, you know, 
good food or a good shopping experience, you have to take the long drive to Thomasville or mm-hmm. Tallahassee. <laughs> and uh, I grew up hating the South mm-hmm. um, because I viewed a lot of the way that my family uh, acted in the world as backwards or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some of those are obvious. So I was very progressive on race issues because I was a nerdy kid. Mm-hmm. And basically, when I was in middle school, the only kids who would hang out with me were black kids. <laughs> um, the white kids, they just wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> and so when I would catch wind of any racial undertone or even overt racism in the cultural South, it really plagued me. And I started to associate other things about the South, uh, rural culture, um, front porches, you know, all these actually kind of be beautiful and poetic things, a mm-hmm. slower pace of life, appreciation for the outdoors, with that kind of anti-progressive, uh, racist worldview. Mm-hmm. And it's only as I've grown older that I've started to appreciate um, the real beauty of the South, that there is this darkness here, um, especially in regards to race relations, but there is also... Um, a connection with the soil, with mm-hmm. the land, with the space that isn't as present in America's urban centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the the idea that, um, well, I go to New York a lot. And in New York, there's a million things to do. And they're all in buildings and they're all with people. Uh, unless you go to Central Park, which is an, an outdoor space, designed by engineers and architects. Mm -hmm. So there really is no natural spaces in New York and its boroughs. Right. Um, But when you come down south, and especially in the deep south, where acres kind of outnumber people, uh, there becomes this different energy where, uh, you know, hopping in an ATV with a couple of people and riding through the woods for two hours is like a perfectly acceptable Friday night. Right. And it seems, you know, silly to someone in an urban center, but once you get out there in the sights and the sounds and smells of these, you know, pine canopies or, or in certain parts of North Florida, oak canopies, uh, you are more connected to humanity's roots than you ever are in an urban center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I have a friend of mine, uh, who's black, and he told me that he appreciated Southerners because he knew where he stood. And what I mean is, if a, a white Southerner accepted him, mm-hmm. he knew he was truly accepted. Mm. Whereas his friends in the West or the Northeast, you could be friends with someone for years before mm-hmm. you found this sudden betrayal uh, from some kind of racist tendency. And so in that way, he actually lauded the more overt nature of Southern racism as opposed to the rest of the country. Interesting. Um, So it's shaped me in that uh, I am a Southern male, and I'll never get away with that, but I've also (laughs) stopped trying. I try instead to redeem those things I find beautiful and moving about the South while learning from those things that I find more troubling. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put that because, uh, as I mentioned, so I've, I'm born and raised Tallahassee, and then 
went away to college, came back, and then took over the store um, two and a half years ago. And Thomasville, um, I think anybody would tell you, um, but I certainly didn't know until I moved here, Thomasville is different even from Tallahassee. Um, And I remember this a South that I didn't know still existed. My husband jokingly calls it um, Downton Abbey of the South <laughs> um, <laughs> because it because it's these they're these beautiful huge plantations and homes and fox hunts still happen and people dress for hunting and it's just this very different environment that I honestly didn't know existed. But the South is so much more nuanced than I want it to be because it would be easy for me I think. Um, as someone who has sometimes had trouble with her Southern roots, I guess, um, it would be easy for me to dismiss life on these plantation homes. Um, and yet then I read recently, cause I, I have been trying to get to know Thomasville a little better and, and its history better. And these huge plantation homes and these hunting places that I just cannot understand, they have really... Um, saved these huge pieces of land from development. And so th- these these large kind of pieces of land that I want to distrust and I want to dislike what's happening there, and yet at the same time, the people who run these plantations love the earth. And they have taken such good care to make sure that these plantations don't leave their families and don't become developed. And as a result, you know, you've got that beautiful drive between Tallahassee and Thomasville that's essentially just woods. Um, And that I read somewhere that it's something like, I wish I knew the exact statistic. I'll try to look it up um, for the show notes. But um, it's this statistic of it's like the largest piece of land that's undeveloped in this part of the country, like in the South. And that's because of these plantation owners that in my head, I think, oh, I don't really want to like or support what their past has done or, you know, none of them are, or maybe have those negative connotations anymore. But um, the South is so nuanced because then I turned around and realized, oh, they've done, there's, they're so into the ecology and the, and the geography. They love the land and they've taken care of it. And so I can't turn my nose up at it like I wanted to. (laughs) Um, which I think is really kind of growing up in the South and and becoming an adult in the South, you kind of realize it's just more nuanced than you think it is, um, for better and worse, I guess. You mentioned earlier your podcasts, uh, that you do both the liturgist and ask science Mike. And I'm curious specifically about the liturgist podcast because ask science Mike kind of tells us in the subject or in the name what it is. Um, but tell me a little bit about the liturgist podcast. Well, uh, you know, we started the liturgist with the idea that, um, a lot of the media produced in the church, um, was a little shallow. Mm -hmm. So like every Christian song had to end on a happy note. (laughs) Um, with a singable chorus and um, there wasn't a lot of room for doubt or deconstruction or lament which are all biblical ideas but Mm -hmm. don't get a lot of the limelight in the church today so we started creating these monthly liturgies um, to help people have a broader uh, sample of you know 2,000 years of Christian worship traditions mm-hmm. instead of just kind of the, 
the you know 1970s forward contemporary Christian culture, and it was a ton of work <laughs> to mm-hmm. do that because we're literally going to recording studios and, and writing scripts and bringing in uh, collaborators, and uh, you know it only took about six months for us to work ourselves into total exhaustion. <laughs> and so we thought maybe we should start a podcast because it would be less work. Mm-hmm. Uh, to release those every two weeks, and then we could kind of slow down the um, liturgical release schedule. Mm. The problem is, uh, my partner Michael Gunger is a Grammy-nominated musician, <laughs> so his ideas about production quality <laughs> tend to be pretty high. Yes, and he kind of wanted to make something more like Radio Lab mm-hmm. uh, that's highly produced and uses segments. And but the idea is that we take a topic and invite a friend along on fun episodes and talk about one topic through three lenses, and those lenses are science, art, and faith. Okay. And we didn't know what would happen. We certainly didn't expect to create one of the most popular Christian podcasts in the world. Mm-hmm. The Liturgist Podcast is uh, downloaded every week, in over 50 countries worldwide. Wow. Uh, it's got over a quarter million subscribers, a really good episode, like uh, we did an episode on LGBTQ mm-hmm. that got downloaded a million times. Wow. Um, so, and our commitment on that show is just speaking honestly mm-hmm. and without trying to keep anything in any sort of rail. There's no boundaries on the conversation. There's no question that's off limits. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like a lot of people were hungry for that approach because with no marketing and doing everything wrong, um, you know, we're talking to a few hundred thousand people every month. That's really amazing. And I think it shows that people are really hungry for that. And I, I would imagine based on those numbers that they're grateful that you guys exist. You know, and the thing that we found is through the show, there's this weird thing if you're producing work in any relation to the church world and that you're doing this out of some kind of spiritual motivation, but then there's also this very strange kind of pedestal celebrity culture to the church as well. Hmm. Uh, and that's something that I find pretty off-putting, and Michael does too. And what's been really amazing about the Liturgist podcast is the degree to which that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And we basically just found people we'd like to hang out with anyway. Mm-hmm. So when we do events or when we you know, run into people on the street who recognize our voices, it's nothing but good experiences. Mm-hmm. Kind of like we're having now, it's just a conversation between people with similar interests. Right. And uh, it's, it's really, really been fascinating and unexpected how much community we found through the program. That's wonderful. How often does it um, post, or the, does it come up on iTunes? About every two weeks. Okay. Um, if, if we if, if two weeks gets there and we don't have an episode we feel is ready to run, we don't run until we have one we think is good enough. Mm-hmm. But about every two weeks. I used to get a lot of... They tell you in podcasting that you know a regular schedule is essential to building an audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true to some degree. But we've also found that a commitment to just really outstanding quality mm-hmm. uh, can offset some of that schedule pressure. So if you consistently make just the very best work you're capable of, mm-hmm. people will show up if you're even four or five weeks late with an episode. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I, I always hope that that is true, not necessarily of the podcast, but I think um, just my work in the bookstore or the work that our staff does, the goal is just to put good work out there and you just kind of have to keep your fingers crossed and hope that people find you <laughs> and hope that people will kind of could, fall in love with what you do. Could I just say as an outside observer <laughs> that you appear to be a well-run machine well, thank you. <laughs> uh, based on your email schedule and the kind of events you hold and the frequency you do it with. Well, thanks. I- I've been really amazed. Well, thank you. That is definitely something we have worked hard on this year. And it's, but you know, I, my degree was in journalism and so I'm used to deadlines and this is kind of a whole new world retail and, and running an independent bookstore is totally different, but I firmly believe. And, and I think that it is true that if you, if you do good work and if you're passionate about what you do, ultimately people will find you. And I'm not sure that's a great business model, (laughs) but, but, um, but it's what I'm, you know, I feel like if we keep doing doing good work and if we keep putting hands uh, putting books into the hands of readers, I think I think we're gonna make a difference and find our audience, much like you all have found have found yours. Okay, I've got two questions that aren't faith, science, or spiritually spirituality related at all. Um, okay, but I want to end on these. Um, this podcast is all about. Um, this part of the country, and we have listeners from all over, but um, we really cover Tallahassee, Thomasville, this area. So let's say you've got company in town for the holidays. What are your go-to spots in Thomasville or Tallahassee? Where do you eat? Where do you shop? What local places are you a big fan of? Wow. (laughs) So one thing I'll say is we get really discouraged (laughs) Tallahassee is a considerably larger city than Thomasville. Yes. And yet our downtown compared to your downtown yes. is, yes. is really disappointing. Yes. But Gain Street, you're trying. I feel like Tallahassee's trying, and it's just taking a <laughs> long <trying>. time. <laughs> it's been 50 years they've been trying to read it, not a lie. Yes. Uh, Tallahassee's downtown, and just, it just hasn't gone well. I think in Tallahassee... Um, let's see. I really like Essence of India. Okay. It's an Indian restaurant. It's a go-to for me to take people. Um, I really like Cypress. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Lucky Goat Coffee. That's new. Yep. Let's see. Uh, I'm so bad about this. <laughs> I travel all the time, so I probably could tell you more about L.A. or <laughs> New York than the town I live in. Uh, now, Thomasville, I know a little bit better now. Uh, my wife and I, our favorite thing to do on uh, either, since I'm an author now, we can go do this during the week for lunch or on the weekend and take the kids, is actually to go to downtown Thomasville. Mm-hmm. And there's a few places we kind of stop every time. <laughs> uh, we always end our trip at your store because uh, we know we're going to have bags we have to carry after we've been there. <laughs> we don't want to have to walk with our books. Um uh, Sweetgrass, of course, is phenomenal. Yes. Um, like, and what's interesting is I travel so much, I see their um, cheese everywhere. Yeah. So I'll be in like a really nice restaurant and be like, Sweetgrass, I've literally been to Sweetgrass. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty I cool. I also think they have like the best curated beer list in the region. That's what my husband says, uh, too. He thinks they're amazing. Proof is pretty good in Tallahassee, too, but proof just is because they brew their own stuff. But yeah. Sweetgrass is really good. Um, 
then you might be surprised that um, I'm not going to give the nod on seafood to Jonas mm-hmm. there. Um, instead, George and Louis, yes. uh, just a couple blocks up, is like just phenomenal. Not only is the food great and uh, the staff really friendly, but I like the design of the space. Isn't Very, it beautiful? A lot of natural light. Just gorgeous. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're on the coast. I love George and Louis. We live right near there, and I love it. So those are probably right. now. Obviously, I'm a foodie and a book guy, so my favorite spots are two places to eat and a place to buy books. But, uh, <laughs> we don't judge. We like that. <laughs> Thomasville is just. I like how walkable it is. Tallahassee. There's a lot of great stuff. Yeah. But you're going to have to get in the car and drive 10 to 15 minutes to go spot to spot. Yep. In Thomasville, you can park your car and walk for a couple hours, three hours, hit five or six different places, and just have a really great experience. Uh, and I really hope, you know, Tallahassee city planners listen to this podcast <laughs> and just literally try to emulate Thomasville. <laughs> that is something Thomasville has going for it. It's one of the things... I mean, we knew we would need to move to Thomasville in order to take over the business, but it was appealing to us because it definitely is a small southern town, but the walkability reminds us of a bigger city. Like, just because you can park your car and you don't have to... Sometimes we'll find ourselves at home and we'll realize, oh, we left our car somewhere. We have no idea where it is because because we've walked downtown and we live downtown and so... Um, you don't even have to rely on your car as much as you do in some other southern towns. Um, okay, last question. I used to do a lot of work for the folks at uh, Flowers Foods. Oh, did you? And so I'd spend time up there, and it was such a delight. They're all such kind people. It's one of my favorite clients. Yeah, um, everybody. But it also nice. let me enjoy what Thomas feels like. Yes. All right, last question. I ask everybody um, who comes on the podcast this question. What are you reading right now? Well, this morning I just um, closed out a book I really, really loved. Okay. I read mostly nonfiction, like overwhelmingly. 85, 90% of the books I read are nonfiction. Mm-hmm. This is actually a novel called The Last Pilot okay. by Benjamin Johncock. And it was a fictional telling of a test pilot who became part of uh, NASA in its early days and then kind of washed out um, because of personal problems. And I just thought it was really well written. He kind of took a different take than I've ever seen on dialogue. Mm -hmm. He incorporated dialogue without quotations into the narrative text. Oh, interesting. And it was a less... It was an easier dialogue read than I've ever had in any book. Hmm. Um, so really phenomenal telling there. Okay. Uh, so I just opened to reread for probably the tenth time uh, Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot. Um, okay. He does such a good job speaking of science beautifully and poetically and telling stories as he does so. And I'm trying to prime my subconscious to do the same here at the tail end of a book rewrite, so I thought I could do worse than aiming for Carl Sagan. There you go. Some inspirational reading. (laughs) Totally is. And my inspirational reading is a book about space exploration, but you know, that's how I roll. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Where can people find you online? We'll link to it in the show notes, but tell people where they can find you on the internet. Since my name is impossible to spell, the easiest way to find me is to just go to AskScienceMike.com. Okay. From there, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to both the podcasts I do. If you click on the work button, you'll see a summary of everything I do. Um, that takes you right to the podcast, and uh, it's probably the easiest place to find me. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, We so enjoyed having you. Thank you, listeners, for catching this episode of From the Front Porch. As always, you can find full episodes on iTunes or at our store website, www.bookshelfthomasville.com. If you'd like to interact with us, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, and on Twitter and Instagram, at Bookshelf Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.